We're starting a new series today. We are going to be working through the book of Galatians, and we're going to do that every Sunday from today, and it's going to take us right through to the end of April, just past Easter. And we take the Word of God really seriously, so we want to take our time over that. We want to really try and get to grips with what it is God wants to say to us as a church through the book of Galatians. Uh, so we are going to take our time with it, and you're going to hear from Galatians every Sunday. There's nothing else going on between now and April but Galatians, with the exception of our one uh, Vision Sunday in February. So I hope you're excited about that. That's going to be a little journey for us um, through Galatians over the next wee while. So, you know, we're looking at what did it mean then and what does it mean now? That's the principle that we always uh, hold to when we're looking at Scripture. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? Uh, this morning, it's going to come up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible in front of you, whether digital or old school paper, it's Galatians chapter 1 that we're in, and we're just going to look at the first five verses together. So let's get going, shall we? Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So in my family, uh, bless my dad, I love him dearly, and he's good at very, very many things, but one of the things he is not good at is kind of practical stuff. He can't cook, he's not very good at DIY, he knows nothing about cars, and that's fine, because I still love him and we get by. But the story goes that in school, in high school, he was in a woodwork class and he'd been working away for a long time. I don't quite know what he was making. He was doing something with wood, crafting something, I don't know, carving something. And he'd really taken his time over this thing, this project. And the moment came where he took it to his teacher and he said, here, sir, here's my work. And the woodwork teacher looked at the wood and began to cry. And he said, what have you done to my wood? What have you done to my wood? And there's an element of that kind of sentiment in the book of Galatians. What have you done? What's going on? Uh, Paul, who's written this letter, he has planted churches across the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And he started these churches, and now he's hearing reports that they are believing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, that the gospel that Paul had preached to them was not quite what they were, beginning, uh, what they were believing at the moment, that the gospel they'd heard was being diluted, and the work of the cross was kind of being undermined and so he's writing to put them straight on a few things you know so there's this there's throughout his book there's almost a sense of urgency and heartbreak in his tone what have you done to the gospel he uses phrases like you know what have you done who has bewitched you i am astonished that you are deserting the gospel like this because for paul the gospel really matters the truth matters what have you done so let's quickly look a little bit further at um, the background to this letter. So it's a letter. The Bible is made up of lots of different types of writing. Some of the Bible is history. Some of the Bible is poetry. This is a letter. And 
it was the custom at the time not to write a letter in the way that we probably would, where we sign it off, lots of love from Paul. But you start your letter, hello, Paul here. And that's why it says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle. He's saying, this letter is from me, Paul. No surname required. His authority is such that people just know who he is. He doesn't need a surname. It's a bit like Chuck, isn't it? We don't call him Chuck Freeland. It's just Chuck. We all know who Chuck is. So it's just Paul. And what Paul does is he spends some time uh, reaffirming, restating who he is, where his authority comes from. He says he's an apostle who's sent by God, not just appointed by a man, sent from God himself. So he's saying, you can trust me. God sent me. You can believe what I have to say. God has called me. My words are from God. And that is important to us. It's important that we understand that. Because although the Bible has been written by human hand, if you like, we believe that it is inspired by God. It is the word of God. It is God's word to us. As it says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed written by man but inspired by the Holy Spirit so it's a letter it's written by Paul and it's written to the churches multiple churches in Galatia those first Christians they came from a Jewish background you remember the Old Testament the whole story of the nation of Israel was that they were God's chosen people God's special people and so when they then became Christians and accepted Jesus in their lives at first what they assumed was all the old stuff all our Jewish practices and customs they kind of come with us into this new life with Jesus that's what they thought we're God's special people and all the old stuff that about us being God's special people that's still here that's still in us and yet they got very confused and thrown when they suddenly realized people who are not Jewish are accepting Jesus these people who are not from a Jewish background the Gentiles they're called they're accepting Jesus oh well that's very confusing how can that how does that work and there was a group of people known as the Judaizers who were going around and they're teaching these Gentiles people from a non-Jewish background that the only way to live is to become Jewish first you have to do all the Jewish stuff namely you have to be circumcised as well as accept Jesus you have to do it both being a Christian is about also being a Jew. That's what they were teaching. So these early Christians were living with this struggle of a kind of dual identity. What does it mean to, uh, to accept Jesus, to live as a Christian? And what do I do with those old rules and those old ways of living? That's what they were battling with. And that is who Paul is writing to. What have you done to the gospel? He wants them to hear it again. And so in this first five verses five short verses Paul sets up for himself the structure of this whole letter because we see the first two verses Paul talks about himself and his authority and then in the next few verses he goes on to explain what the gospel is and that's how the book works the first couple of chapters are about Paul and his authority and who he is and a bit of his story and then he develops chapters three through to six talking about the work of Jesus and the gospel and what the cross means Today, this morning, what I actually want us to mainly focus on is verses 3 to 5, okay? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 3, grace to you. Verse 5, glory to him. 
grace to you and glory to him. And what holds that together in the middle is the cross, the gospel, God's great rescue mission. The gospel is there in these five verses, in these three verses even, sandwiched between grace and glory. So that's what I want to look at this morning. In some ways, a very simple message. I think, Colin, you expressed a lot of what I want to say this morning very well earlier on. I want us to look again at the gospel. Look at God's grace again. And, and, and it's very easy for us to think that we, we understand it or maybe we've been a Christian for a long time. And we, yeah, I know what the gospel is. I know that God loves me. And yet this letter was written to believers. You know, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that the gospel is for people who don't know God. You know, I must share the gospel with my friends and my neighbors who aren't Christians. They need the gospel, and yes, they do, but we need the gospel too. We need to remind ourselves this letter is written for believers. Paul wanted them to hear the gospel again in its purest form to remind them of what the truth is. And so that's what we're going to look at today, if that's all right. It's a new year, it's a new study series, and uh, I just think it's a good moment for us to reacquaint ourselves with God, who God is, what he's done for us, and get back to the basics. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, so the first thing, grace to you. Verse 3, grace to you, it says. Grace is one of those little words, isn't it, that trips off the tongue. It's a very Christian word, isn't it? We love that classic hymn, Amazing Grace. Everybody knows that hymn, don't they? Uh, we, we use it in our kind of church jargon language. You know, I'll just have a little bit of grace for them at the moment. They're having a tough time. Grace is God's love for us. Given not because we deserve it, we don't, but given because God loves to give it. God loves to give it to us. Anyone here a fan of musicals or musical theatre? Anyone? A couple of people. Yeah. Uh, for my 10th birthday, I went to see Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat in London with Philip Schofield as Joseph. It was my best birthday ever. And I do love Joseph, but I have to say I'm not massively a fan of musicals particularly. I watched Frozen over Christmas and I was amazed at how much singing was, was in that, but uh, I'll let it go. And... Anyway, my point was this. I was going to talk about the, the musical Les Miserables. So obviously it wasn't written as a musical. I believe it was a book, first of all. But Les Mis, <clears throat> I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story. Jean Valjean, 24601. He's a prisoner, he's an ex-prisoner, sorry, on the run. And he's shown hospitality by a kind bishop who takes him in for the night. Now Jean Valjean has nothing. He... Uh, He's dirty, smelly, he has nothing to offer. Uh, and this bishop takes him in, gives him something to eat, gives him somewhere to stay for the night, gives him clean clothes, just shows him great kindness. What a gift. What a gift for Jean Valjean. And how does he repay him? In the middle of the night, he gets up, he gets the family silver, puts it in his bag, and legs it. He steals the family silver. And so the next day, the police come round. They've found him, and they've seen that he's stolen this stuff, and they drag him back to the bishop's house, and they say, look who we found. And, and he says that you gave him this stuff. And in that moment, what does the bishop say? He says, I did. I gave him that stuff. Hang on a minute, you, you forgot something. And he goes off, gets some candlesticks, and says, wait a minute, you, for, you forgot these. These are the best. Jean Valjean is astonished 
at that response. You know, in that moment, the bishop could have been like, what, you stole my family silver? And he t that's totally not what he does. And the police go and, and leave them to themselves. And uh, what the bishop basically says is, I want you to use this moment. Use this. Take my stuff and go and change your life. Go and sort yourself out. And, it d and he does. For Jean Valjean, that moment of incredible kindness and grace transforms his life. It's a really powerful moment in the story. And if you've watched the film or seen the musical, I'm sure it's far more powerful than how I just explained it. But Victor Hugo, who wrote the story, he wrote that intentionally as a picture of God's grace. Undeserved. Completely undeserved. Christ's love for us, although we might know this, we need to hear it again and regularly, I believe. Christ's love for us is not based on whether or not we have sorted our lives out. It's not. He loves us unconditionally you know when we tell ourselves that I'm not good enough for God it's true we're not but God loves us anyway he loves us Romans 5 verse 8 says while we were sinners Christ died for us while we were sinners Christ died it doesn't say Christ waited until we'd fixed ourselves up Christ waited till we dealt with our issues and then he died for us it doesn't say that while we were sinners, Christ died for us because he loved us. And our sin does matter, and our sin is important to God, and it's right that we deal with it. But, you know, I really believe that when God looks at us, our sin is not the first thing that he sees. When God looks at us, our sin is not the first thing that he sees. His heart is full of love for us. And I think when it comes to grace, I think there's two kind of categories that we can fall into in terms of receiving God's grace. First of all, I think there are people, and we struggle to receive that. We just struggle to come to terms with the fact that God could love me, but how could God love me? I'm a sinner. Doesn't he realize that? Doesn't he know what I've done? But he does. And, and we're so quick to push it away, aren't we? Like, like we feel the need to tell God all the reasons why he shouldn't love us. But God, I've done this and I've done that. And, you know, I'm dirty. I'm full of shame. I'm guilty. And God says, I know. I still love you. I love you. I love you. You know, I'm sure that the people in our lives we, we realize aren't perfect. The people in our family and our, our friends that we love dearly, we know that they have their flaws and yet we still manage to somehow find a way to love them despite their flawedness, if that's a word, flawedness, despite their flaws. And, uh, you know, sometimes we need to help them with the things in their life that, that are not good and not right, but we can find a way to love people. If we can understand that on a human level, it is possible to love someone who is flawed times that by a million that's how God feels about us he knows that we're flawed he still loves us he still loves us my dad always used to say it's not easy but it is simple it's not easy to understand God's grace and it doesn't make sense perhaps but it is as simple as that he loves you he loves you that's that simple it's not easy but it is simple so some of us, you know, we struggle to accept it. I, I think also there's um, a number of us probably who we accept God's love, we accept God's grace, but we kind of don't recognize the weight of it. We're a bit blasé about it. You know, yes, I know God loves me, 
I know he loves me. And it doesn't like mean anything to us anymore. It doesn't impact us. Maybe we don't spend time really pondering what that means, that God loves you, or to thank him for that. You know, it's that kind of idea that it's, it's maybe lost a bit of the magic. It's lost a bit of its wonder. You know, when I was a kid and we went to McDonald's once a year, it was like, oh, a burger. You know, it was amazing, a burger. I just relish this burger. Relish, that's a good joke, isn't it? I, you know, I can't believe how special this is, this annual burger. Whereas now, I don't go to McDonald's that often, but, you know, it's just like, yes, yeah, burger, it's nice. And we can kind of have that attitude a little bit to God's love. Yeah, thanks, God, for your love nice you know we don't have that God's love that wonder that impact on us anymore or perhaps we just kind of fool ourselves into thinking yeah of course God has loved me I'm a decent person I haven't really done anything that would mean that he shouldn't love me so of course he does you know and we kind of we just don't get it in the way that we should God's grace is outrageous that's what we need to understand it is outrageous that every single person here is a sinner and has done stuff wrong, whether we recognize it or not, and yet God absolutely loves us. And we need to shake off that kind of ignorance. So today, I think, is a good opportunity for, the opportunity for us to just spend some time thinking about that. Again, meditating on God's incredible love for us. It's everlasting. It is unchanging. He won't change his mind and suddenly decide he doesn't love you anymore. And when you do inevitably disappoint him, it's still not going to be enough for him to say, that's enough, I don't love you. He will always, always love us. Would it be okay if we just prayed for a second? Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just want to take a moment to think on your love this morning and thank you. Thank you that you love us. That you take our rags and you turn them into riches. God, that you would love us despite all our flaws and all our mess. We thank you. Would your love wash over us right now, God, like a tidal wave? We just receive your love now. And for those of us that don't feel worthy of it, God, would you just pour your love in? Pour your love in. Amen. Okay, so grace. Second of all, the gospel. Verse 4. In this one sentence, Paul kind of outlines again what the gospel is. You know, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He gave himself to rescue us. I love that. We've been singing such great songs this morning, you know, about that actually. Brilliant songs. You alone can rescue. The word gospel, it means good news. And I don't know about you, but kind of when I think of good news, I imagine things like, you know, oh, so-and-so's had a baby, or they've, they've got over their illness, or they've got, you know, their dream job. That's that sort of stuff. That's good news. And then when you say, Jesus died, and he didn't really deserve to, it kind of doesn't feel like the sort of thing that you should celebrate, does it? It doesn't sound on the surface of things like that's good news. It seems actually very unfair, 
Why did Jesus have to die? Surely God in heaven could have just waved his magic wand and absolved us of our sins somehow without needing to do such a cruel thing to Jesus. Why did he have to do that? Well, it tells us here, verse 4, it was always God's plan. It was always God's will that that would happen. There has to be, biblically, there has to be a sacrifice in order for sin to be forgiven. And so in the Old Testament, what that meant was you would bring an animal to the altar. When you wanted to say sorry for your sin and be forgiven, you brought your best, your finest goat, sheep, lamb, I don't know what it might be, and you sacrificed it, and it was messy. And uh, in Jesus, he came to be the final sacrifice for everyone forever so that when his blood was shed, that was it, and we don't need to do that anymore. So we need to be sorry for our sins, sure. We need to ask God to forgive us, but we don't need to sacrifice anything. We don't need to shed any blood, but the offering that we bring to God instead is our lives, that we choose to give our lives to serving him. I love the, ver- the bit where it says that he came to rescue us. Jesus came to rescue us. So Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, although he was a very good teacher. He wasn't just a teacher, he was a rescuer. If you see, and I hope you never have to see this, someone drowning in a pool, what are you going to do? You're not going to throw in a manual on how to swim, are you? When someone's drowning, you don't throw teaching at them. You throw them a rope or you get in and you save them yourself. If somebody needs to be rescued, what does that imply? They are helpless. They are utterly helpless. There is nothing that they can do on their own to change the situation because you can't rescue yourself. You can't rescue yourself. And this is the kind of language that Paul uses to describe what Jesus did. He rescued us. We were hopeless We were helpless. We were drowning in our sin. There was nothing we could do. And Jesus stepped in to save us. We like um, the idea, I think, of of self-help. I mean, every day on the internet, you see these kind of articles going around. 10 ways to be happy. 15 New Year's resolutions you should be making this year. You know, five ways you can beat the winter blues. It's all this kind of self-help, what you should do. And self-salvation seems to be a very appealing idea. And I think that we can fall into that sometimes without even realizing that we're doing and I think again this is maybe what Colin was touching on a little bit that we think that we can earn God's approval earn his love you know to be a good Christian I need to do x y and z and I need to get up and pray at six in the morning and you know God will be pleased with me if I do these things and I'm sure God will be pleased with you if you do those things because they're good things to do but we don't do them to earn God's approval you don't need to earn God's approval because at the heart of the gospel is this. Jesus rescued you and you had nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. Jesus did it. We serve, we pray, we do all that stuff because we love him and we want to do that, not to earn his uh, approval or his favor or his love. And this is the problem with the Galatians. This is exactly what Paul is addressing. They have taken the place of where the cross should be in their lives and put themselves in it. They have put put themselves where Jesus belongs. 
I need to do this stuff to earn God's love. I need to be circumcised. I need to keep these rules. And Paul's like, no, no, have you forgotten the gospel? Jesus did it. Jesus rescued you. It's not about you. And Tim Keller, who is uh, an author and a pastor, he, he writes this. If we contributed to our own rescue, if we rescued ourselves, or if God had seen something deserving of rescue in us, or even if we'd simply cried out for rescue based on our own reasoning and understanding, then we could pat ourselves on the back for the part we played in saving ourselves. But the biblical gospel is clear that from first to last, it is God's doing, his calling, his plan, his action, his work. And so it is him that deserves the glory. It is nothing to do with you. And then the flip side of being rescued, when you're rescued, what does that result in? Freedom. It results in freedom. And freedom is a massive theme in the book of Galatians, and you'll see that in the next few weeks as we start to go through the book together. Freedom is a theme of this letter. Galatians uh, chapter 5 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He wants us to be free. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the stuff that imprisoned you. You're free. Jesus has done it. And Paul, who wrote this letter, remember, this is his story. He has experienced the transforming power of God's love and the freedom that that brings. Paul, he was a top dog Pharisee. He was the rule keeper of all rule keepers. He hated the idea of these Christians and their freedom he couldn't make head nor tail of it, and he went out of his way to persecute people who believed that, and then God stopped him dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. He showed Paul, or Saul as he was called then, who he really was, and he changed his life. He turned it upside down. So Paul is writing this letter, having experienced this from himself. He's no longer bound by legalism and rule-keeping. Paul knows what freedom really is, and he just wants them and us to understand that for ourselves. Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free from negative thought patterns, from unhealthy relationships, from addictive behavior, whatever it might be. Christ gave his life that we would be free. So at the start of the year, why don't we make this the year for each of us individually to give those things that we know um, hold us captive, the things that we're bound by, to give them to God and allow his Holy Spirit to transform our lives, that we would know freedom, that we would know that there is power in Jesus' name to break those chains. He can do it. He can do it. And, you know, for the rest of us, that means as well that we would stand in the gap and pray for each other, for freedom. When we know people that struggle with things, pray for them pray for them that they would find freedom we're starting uh, in a couple of weeks we're starting the road to maturity course uh, on a Thursday night here at church it's the third time that we'll have run this course and we really believe it's, it's brilliant it's a six week course and the, the name is a little bit rubbish and a bit misleading but it's about going deeper uh, developing maturity in your relationship with God so uh, for all of us you know we're on a journey with the Lord and Sometimes there are stumbling blocks on that journey. There are things that stop us maybe running as fast as we could be. There are things that trip us up. And part of what we do on this course is just look at what those things might be. 
So a lot of that is to do with inner healing and dealing with issues in our lives. So I just really encourage you, there'll be more information to come about that, but I'd really encourage you to think about coming along to that. If you've never done the course, it's brilliant. I really recommend it. And whether you think you've got issues in your life that you know you need to deal with, or whether you just think, do you know what, I just, I'm serious about God and I do want to go deeper, just come. Just come. It will be a really, really great six weeks. So more about that later. But I, I say that because this is all part of the same thing, that actually God just wants us to be free. He wants us to be free. And that is the heart of the gospel. He rescued us so we'd know freedom. Okay, so grace, gospel, and finally, glory. And isn't it amazing that all three begin with G and they were right there in the text. I didn't even really have to try to do that. It's just right there in the text. Verse five, glory to God the Father forever and ever. Glory to God because he is the rescuer. Glory to God because it is his doing and not ours. Glory to God because it was part of his eternal plan. I know the last couple of times I've spoken, I've mentioned uh, The Apprentice, the BBC Apprentice, and I'm going to mention it again now. I miss it. It finished before Christmas, and I just feel a little bit bereft because it's not on anymore. I love it. Uh, one of the things that is so entertaining and fascinating about The Apprentice is just looking at the way they work together, the team dynamics. They're incredibly competitive, and rightly so. It's a competition. But just watching how that plays out and what happens at the end of every task is they, they gather back in the boardroom with Lord Sugar and they, you know, they debrief how did the task go, what was good, what was bad. And, oh my goodness, when it doesn't go well, the claws come out. You know, what has been a team, all of a sudden they start yelling at each other and no one wants to accept any blame for anything. You know, Lord Sugar says, okay, who's responsible for the failure of this task? And someone says, well, I believe it was him. And he says, mate, are you joking? It was her. Did you not see? She screwed up way back at the start when she said this. And there's accusations flying, and it's hilarious. And on the flip side, when things go well, people are very quick to take the credit for themselves. Well, of course, the reason that we were so successful in this task is because I designed the logo, and really that's what sold the product. Or, you know, It was all because I delegated really well the success of the task. It's, it's all down to me. And they're very quick to take the credit for themselves. And in our sinfulness, that is just what we're like. In our sinfulness, we are wired that when something good happens, we kind of want to take the credit for ourselves, that we want to take the glory for ourselves. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. And that is pride. And that is a sin. You know, we're not a Christian because of something we have done. And when we hear testimonies of God's provision of a job or you know, his, his healing or his turning around a situation like some of the stuff we heard about already, when we hear those stories, it's not because that person deserved that, that job or they deserved that healing. It's not because they deserved it. And it's not because they are more holy than anyone else. It's because God is good and the glory needs to go to him for that. God is good. When we get our heads really around the gospel, I know many of us, we've heard this over and over again, but we need to remember it because when we get our heads around it, how much God loves us, how much we don't deserve it, what he did by rescuing us, our response should always be, God, you're amazing. Glory to you, God. Glory to you. I'm only who I am because of you. You're amazing, Lord. I give my life 
for you. Because the gospel, it just turns this idea of self-salvation upside down. It turns it on its head. You know, you're not good enough. I'm sorry. You can't take any credit for yourself. You are a sinner. You were hopeless and you needed a rescue. But Jesus did that for you. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. Why don't you stand with me?